This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. This is important to your own personal practical life. While God was giving Gideon specific instructions for the victory, he was also creating fear and trepidation on the other side of the camp. And the sixth principle is really simple. When God asks you to do something, in the midst of the unfortunate events of your life, those that are most difficult, God is always, you can guarantee God is always working on the other side of the camp. You must assume that whatever God's leading and telling you to do, he's also working on the other side of the camp. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. We're still making our way through the series from Judges, the Unpossible series. Pastor Jeff still has more resolutions for us to come as he looks at Gideon and the resolutions we find in these verses. Today's message is about what's happening on the other side of the camp. Here's Pastor Jeff to explain more. I'm in Judges chapter seven. We continue our series called Unpossible. And I want to—I want you to put yourself in Gideon's place just for a moment now that we've come this far in the narrative. So an enemy has been burning your crops and killing your livestock and taking some of your family or your tribe as slaves. You decide to cry out to God for help. And wouldn't you know it, God does show up. He shows up when you're trying to hide the last little bit of grain from the enemy so that you won't die of starvation. When God shows up, you learn that He's not the problem, you are. That you've broken your covenant with God, that you've worshiped foreign gods along with the rest of your people, that you've erected false gods and false idols throughout the land. And you're learning slowly that God will not compete. He refuses to compete with the false idols of your life. So after years and years of patience and warning you, he finally withdraws his presence or protection and down come the Midianites to exterminate you. Now, just before I move on, let's take a little pause here. Because this will remind a lot of us who love this land and this country of something similar that's happening in our midst right now, probably happening to a lot of the Western world. We told God that he's no longer welcome in our schools years ago, in our political arenas and in our homes. And as a result, God, after years and years, decades and decades of patience, decided to withdraw his protection that the principles upon which our country was built, the Judeo-Christian values, Once they go, once those precepts go, there's a natural cause and effect that when you're not living by those precepts, culture begins to disintegrate. Now, of course, we too, like Gideon and the people of Gideon's day, we know the way of healing and restoration, and it can happen just like that. And we know the answer. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, I'll heal their land. So Gideon's in a position now where God has been so patient But now the Midianites are coming down and impoverishing the land of Israel, and they've been doing that for seven years. God now informs Gideon, the overarching view of the story, Gideon is the least of the least, and God usually chooses the least of the least or those who are flawed to do amazing things as he builds their faith and trust in him. He says to Gideon, the least of the tribes, least of the tribesmen, I'm going to use you to defeat 135,000 well-trained, battle-experienced Midianite warriors. 
So God goes into this uh, season with Gideon where he's going to build Gideon. He's going to create in Gideon a giant killer. And part of that is we saw in chapter 6 and 7, especially the early part of chapter 7, that God sifts his army down to 300 men. He starts out with 32,000 because he had blown the trumpet to the other tribes. God sifts his men down to 300, better than a 450 to one odd. He then sifts Gideon's arsenal down to trumpets and clay jars and torches. And then after he sends Gideon a word of encouragement that we dealt with last week, now he comes to Gideon and says, okay, it's time. Array your army for battle. You're gonna be the aggressors. And Gideon's faith has been built He says, okay, let's do this. Let's pick up the story in verse 16, chapter seven. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them, follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. Now, some translations say for a a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Uh, We'll talk about that in a moment. Verse 19, Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the middle of the, or beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. It's important. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands, And holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. Now, quickly, what's happening here? It's a truly fascinating scene. Just as God instructed Gideon's army descends upon the Midianite camp with only 300 men carefully spaced out and trumpets, clay jars, and torches with a mind-boggling battle plan that came straight from God. He instructs the men to blow their trumpets, to smash their clay jars on the ground. So there's a shout of the trumpet. There's the sound of clay jars smashing on the ground. Torches then are lifted up into the air, but what really got them there to shout to the top of their lungs, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. The narrative gives the impression that Gideon, uncertain as to what all this is going to accomplish, but trusting God, continues to move forward in faith. He doesn't know exactly how all this is going to turn out. He just knows this is what God has told me to do. I'm going to do it. And God sees the other side of the victory. Now, what we don't talk about often, it was also, it would also take an enormous amount of faith of the 300 men to be able to do what Gideon is asking them to do. You you might say, well, I wonder, is there any point where the men said, we think our leader has lost his mind. We have no weapons and this is our strategy. What we fail to understand is, God is probably doing the same thing in the lives of those 300 that he's doing in Gideon. We don't know what they're experiencing, what they're going through. We don't know what events God has orchestrated and fashioned together in the lives of the 300. So that by the time they get to the battle, they're ready. Their faith has been built. Their trust has been built. This narrative is about Gideon. But you can, be rest, you can rest assured God is also working in their lives as well to prepare them for one of Israel's greatest victories. Now, while each man held his position around the camp, the Midianites were told fled in complete fear and disarray without having fired Israel. That is without having fired a single shot or activating any part of their arsenal because they didn't have an arsenal. So they just stood 
And watch, they weren't completely neutral. They did blow the trumpet, they did smash the jar, and they did shout to the top of their voices, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Verse 22 says that when the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Beth Shittah toward Zeherah, as far as the border of Abel-Meholah near Tabath. And so now we have this, this explanation a short explanation of what God had told Gideon and the Israelites to do. And by doing this simple thing, this, just by surrounding the camp, lifting the torches, blowing the trumpet, smashing the jars, and saying to the top of their voices, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, the entire 135,000 Midianite army ran away. But two questions. Why did they run away? And what happened as they were running away? First of all, the reason they ran away is because while God, listen now, this is important to your own personal practical life. While God was giving Gideon specific instructions for the victory, he was also creating fear and trepidation on the other side of the camp. So God was leading Gideon and his men, giving them instructions, but he was also working on the other side of the camp for his purposes to come to fruition. So at first glance, you see 300 trumpets blasting into the darkness, 300 clay jars crashing onto the ground, 300 burning torches lighting up the sky, 300 men circling the camp. All of that seems benign. But remember, the Midianites already had something that was going to cause fear and disarray, and that is God had already sent a dream. By the time we start to engage in the battle, the name Gideon had become synonymous with fear and trepidation. They had heard that there's a dream that the gods have sent. Now, they probably didn't think of God as Yahweh or Elohim or Adonai. They probably thought the gods, because dreams were big, big deal in those days. The gods have sent a dream and, we're, and it spreads throughout the camp like wildfire. Somebody once wrote, gossip dies when it hits a wise person's ears. Well, evidently there's nobody wise among the Midianites, because when the dream hits, it spreads like wildfire. So by the time Gideon and his army's ready to encircle the camp, they're terrified of this name Gideon, which is why they shouted a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Now think about the entire scenario. This is so important. So fearful that God had indeed given the Midianites into the hand of Gideon as the dream predicted, Midianite warriors, according to this text, in confusion and out of abject fear, start turning on each other because they think that everything that's moving is Gideon or an Israelite. Believing that everything moving, every shadow forming, every sword lifting was an Israelite warrior. So the text says that they actually began spearing each other. The Israelites aren't fighting. The battle belongs to the Lord. Now they've carefully followed the instructions of the Lord, which were given to them for a purpose. It was creating havoc as a result of God working on the other side of the camp to instill fear and trepidation in the hearts of the Midianites. As soon as they heard that name and they heard all those clay jars smashing and they heard a sword for the Lord in Gideon and the, the light of the torches burning through the night, they turned on each other and actually started to kill each other. Now, you, you may read the text. And somebody may say, well, you know, that just seems too fantastical. But notice something else about the impeccable timing of God. In Judges 7, 19, Gideon and the, the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp. 
at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. In other words, all the commotion occurs at the precise time where the guard is changing in the middle of the night. So you've got all these guys that are coming off the first watch. They're tired because from lack of sleep. And they're just wanting to go back to their tents, hoping to catch some shut-eye just for a moment, much needed rest. Simultaneously, the members of the second watch are coming into watch, but they're groggy because they've just woken up after just a few hours of sleep. They leave their tents to relieve those who are on the first watch. Again, God's timing is impeccable. Now, while God was giving Gideon these specific instructions for the battle, one more time, he was also working on the other side of the camp, orchestrating and fashioning together circumstances that would lead to a complete and decisive victory. Now, let's stop right there. If you want some of the greatest adventures of your life, you have to get to the point where you are obedient to the word of God without knowing the end. Only then will you trust God's word and instruction when it seems unreasonable to you because you will know that if the spirit of God is prompting you to do something, he's also orchestrating and fashioning events on the other side of the camp to give you some of the greatest victories of your life. Imagine the thrill of Gideon's army when they followed the instructions, when they did not understand them, probably followed them somewhat reluctantly, then beheld this unanticipated, undeniable, miraculous event. In the book we read or we're reading, we're told we are often defeated because we insist upon our own power and resources. With the call of God comes the power and wisdom of God to lead us to victory. Yet when we go at any obstacle in our own wisdom and understanding, we risk catastrophic failure. Rather than seeking and patiently listening to the voice of God, we sprint out ahead, operating in our own wisdom, manufacturing our own plans, unaware of what is happening on the other side of the camp. As a result, our timing and methods, rather than leading to the greatest victories, end up wreaking havoc. Have you ever been prompted in your life? Important question. Prompted by the Holy Spirit to do something but you doubt the substance and the viability of what you heard, so you refuse to move out. And you say to yourself, I know what I'm hearing, I know what God is saying, but this will never work. And the reason is that's because you keep forgetting that while God is working in your life, he's also working over here to prepare this situation for what he's calling you to do. That can be true, when he tells you and prompts you to restore with a family member, when he wants you to quit your job and move to another place that he will show you, when he wants you to rectify some kind of problem in the workplace by telling you, I want you to go to this person, or I want you to go to your boss, and he tells you and you pray through it and you know God is prompting you to do this, then you can rest assured he's also working in the lives or life of the other person. Business deal, your marriage, whatever it is, when there's restoration, when something that is broken, God wants to mend, he's going to give you specific instructions that lead to the victory. You step forward in faith, even if you don't understand it, because you can rest assured whatever he's telling you, he's orchestrating and fashioning events on the other side of the camp. God calls you to do something. You better believe he's working on the other side of the camp to ensure the victory. I look back in my life and I shudder when I think about the 
many great adventures that I probably missed because God's ways seemed nonsensical to me. Had I been able to do or to see what God was already doing on the other side of the camp, I'm sure his instruction would have made perfect sense, but we don't have that luxury. We have to trust. When God tells us to do something, he's going on ahead of us. In fact, he's three or four moves ahead of us already. Now let's take a little detour here. And I want to come back to this and then we'll tie it all together. When Robin and I and Delaney and Sion, my children, were leaving New Zealand after 10 years of service, my wife wanted to take our kids to a place called Franz Joseph Glacier. It's a dynamic glacier on the South Island. It descends from the tops of the Southern Alps down into a, a type of rainforest that is close to sea level. And as a result, it yields this incredible rare opportunity to be able to walk on one of the world's most scenic and accessible glaciers. Incredible. I considered joining them until Robin told me they were going to go up in a helicopter and then be dropped off on this glacier. I said, no thanks. I don't like being off the ground. Besides that, in my opinion, helicopters are like bumblebees. They're an aeronautical, an aeronautical anomaly. No one really knows how they can stay airborne, and I definitely don't want to risk it. So while they went up to the glacier, I decided I'd go on about a 10-mile run that started at the end of the countryside and made its way to the foot of the glacier. As I was running, I had one of those experiences that I've remembered for a long time and often written about. New Zealand has 64 million sheep and growing, 64 million sheep. They only have just under 5 million people. Now, we've been talking about the odds against you. Talk about the odds against you. 64 million sheep, 5 million people. People often make the comment, we hope the sheep never get angry. The thought occurred to me as I was going by a sheep paddock and looking at the hundreds and hundreds of sheep in New Zealand in this particular paddock, because I'm running in the countryside, beautiful, crisp, clean air, and then you have the smell of all this sheep. And the thought occurred, do these sheep presume that they have any real control over their existence? Yeah, they're free to roam the beautiful New Zealand countryside, and it is beautiful, but are they really free? They eat the grass, chew the cud, they roam the fields, living their lives with almost no interruptions, no known predators really in New Zealand. And yet, even in the midst of this freedom, this, uh, this appearance of freedom, their lives are orchestrated according to the rational plan of the humans in the ranch house. So you've got this big paddock, sheep, and then over you've got the ranch house. They're free to a degree, but their whole lives are orchestrated by the people, by the shepherds, living, the farmers living in the ranch house. I find it interesting that in Psalm 103, we read these words. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. So you and I may have a much larger capacity than the little ewe lamb, but that's only because God has designed us for greater purposes. In fact, we read every event of our lives or your life from the happy to the tragic to the mundane is part of a meticulous and purposeful design in which all the elements intertwine with breathtaking precision to accomplish the work of the ultimate caretaker in the ranch house headquarters, God. Now, on this little detour, most of the time, it is important that we understand that God, as he treats us as the sheep of his pasture, is using, through most of the events of our lives, his rod and his staff. And according to Psalm 23, that's supposed to comfort us. In fact, a few years ago, I read a book entitled, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. 
And I read the book and it's where I learned what the rod and the staff are truly used for. Where the sheep are concerned, the rod can be thrown. Did you know that? It can be, th- the one end of the staff, it can be thrown with great precision by a good shepherd. So when the sheep is starting to stray away, maybe get into some poison berries, maybe he's getting close or the sheep is getting close to predatorial territory or maybe next to the cliffside or a place uh, from which he could fall and be basically end his life. The shepherds, we still see this in Israel today. The shepherds will take the side of the staff, call the rod and will hurl it. And as he hurls it, it will either hit the sheep to scare the sheep, the sheep back in line, or it will create some kind of commotion where the sheep who are, are very skittish will jump back into line and come closer to the shepherd. Now the staff, on the other hand, the sheep pass under it. And this is what I, this was news to me. At the end of the day, to count the sheep, to make sure no, no sheep is missing, they will pass under the staff. So he'll hold the rod in his hand, but the long staff, he will place down on the back of the sheep and will separate the wool. You've heard the uh, phrase, you, you're not gonna pull the wool over my eyes. It means that you're not gonna, you're not gonna uh, shield me from seeing what's really underneath. So the staff will go down on the back of the sheep and it will separate the wool so that you can see if there are any parasites, any pests, any injuries that you otherwise would not know about that would bring bodily harm or even the demise to the sheep. Now, application is very simple, and this is the journey we've been on. God is forever putting up roadblocks in our lives. That's the rod. We're going down a different direction. We think there's something we can't live without. We're pursuing something, even though it might be good in and of itself, God fires the rod, scares us back into line because he knows if we keep going down that path, it will destroy us. So sometimes when we pray that God grant us something, that we get the girl, get the job, get the promotion, get into the school, whatever it is, you have to get to the point in your life when you trust the good shepherd and his best intentions for you. So he puts up roadblocks that you might not understand, but he sees what's beyond the block and knows that if you continue down that road, it will ultimately destroy you. In fact, I'm convinced that God sometimes will purposefully remove things, good things from us, because he knows ultimately we may win that good thing, but lose the ultimate, which would be a relationship with him and eternity in heaven. The other side of that is that God also does an inventory on us. At the end of every day, I'm convinced of this. I'm convinced he counts his sheep at the end of the day and does his own inventory and asks the question, is there anything in this person's life that is placing them in spiritual jeopardy? Is it placing their spiritual health in danger? So I think God, because he's omnipotent and omniscient, does a little bit of, uh, of testing at the end of the day and places his sheep in such a way that he can look deep into their hearts as he takes inventory And he looks for bitterness and jealousy and envy and hatred and entitlement and ingratitude, all the things that can ultimately destroy us. And we can't pull the wool over God's eyes because you can't hide your true feelings and emotions from him. He knows everything. God with us, Emmanuel. So every day is a day that you pass at the end of the day under his staff in some kind of metaphorical way. And therefore God makes plans for you the next day to continue to work on things that have the potential to destroy you. Now, those are easy applications, but they're important to make as we kind of bring all this together and hone in on this sixth principle. And the sixth principle is really simple. When God asks you to do something in the midst of the unfortunate events of your life, those that are most difficult, you can guarantee God is always working on the other side of the camp. 
You have to live with the resolution that no matter what's going on in your life and you hear a hard word from God and he wants, you to, he wants to give you one of the greatest victories of your life, you must assume that whatever God's leading and telling you to do, he's also working on the other side of the camp. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. We've covered a lot of territory on the possibilities why we might go through some of the unfortunate events of our lives. But can I come to this point now in this all-important sixth resolution? Most of the unfortunate events, I, I am totally convinced that come into our lives, that God is orchestrating His pieces on the chessboard to accomplish His ultimate good, and we're part of the movement. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.